and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Today, we're continuing to explore OPAT, the final frontier. I'm Jesse Ortwine, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. I'm back with our amazing panel of OPAT pharmacists, starting with Mira Mehta from West Virginia University. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Keenan Ryan, who is a pharmacist clinician from the University of New Mexico Hospital. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. Our next two panelists share a first name, but come to us with different experiences. Monica Mahoney is a clinical pharmacy specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, everyone. And Monica Donnelly is an infectious diseases pharmacist specialist at the University of California Davis Health System and ID professor at Toro University, California College of Pharmacy. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. We left off last time discussing how programs are addressing the challenge of long-term antibiotic administration in persons who inject drugs, but coming up with a plan for these patients isn't the only challenge in OPAT. Could you guys discuss some of the other big challenges that you face uh, routinely in your OPAT positions? Hi, this is Monica. I would say it really is going to be uh, dependent on your discharge environment, right? Isn't the correct answer to everything? It depends. Uh, <laughs> we send patients everywhere. Uh, we send patients to sniff. We send them to their dialysis centers to get antimicrobials. We've sent them to hotel rooms, homeless shelters, you know, their own homes. And, you know, it's really something that you pick up on the job and through experience you get to learn what is a SNF willing to administer? What can they administer? Do they carry infusion pumps? What will the dialysis center stock or not stock? And especially when you start talking about some of the high ticket antimicrobials, if you say, um, you know, Dalvivancin or Aritavancin or Septazidine Amibactam, you're gonna have to have um, really some, some detailed work into how you're gonna get that antimicrobial to the patient. So getting to know um, line access and place where the patient is headed and what can and can't be feasible, I think is really um, something that we bring that's very valuable and that it's, it's not easily uh, picked up uh, in class or in, in, a, in a guideline. One of the biggest challenges from our standpoint is trying to get other facilities to be receptive to our recommendations. Um, so we our patients do go to skilled nursing facilities, LTACs, dialysis centers, and these outside facilities have their own physicians. They have their own pharmacists and their own nurses that are doing monitoring as well. Um, and they might not always know who we are and that we're an OPAT program at WVU. And so sometimes when we call to follow up on these patients and say, hey, we'd like to follow their labs, we'd like to make recommendations, they're like, hang on a minute, who are you guys all of a sudden um, calling us with recommendations? So sometimes um, we do run into that and we try to explain who we are and that we're a fairly newer program since 2017 and we help with monitoring patients and we're, we're just really here to help and usually that works and everything works smoothly. Um, the other thing is I want to mention are social issues. So we service patients who live in West Virginia but also neighbors 
neighboring states such as Virginia, Maryland, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And a lot of these places we service are rural and patients don't have things like rides. Some of our patients haven't had running water. They didn't have electricity to store their antibiotics in the refrigerator safely. Sometimes they don't even have working telephones to stay in touch with us and they don't always have a car to drive four hours to our hospital if they live four hours away. And so this can be very challenging, but we do our best to work through it. Oftentimes we will send patients to neighboring hospitals that are closer to their home if we need them to get a procedure done or have a first dose of antibiotic, etc. But my pharmacists and I often joke that we're social workers as well because of all the social issues that we work through as well. This is Keenan. I, I think the social issues are always a big issue, and it's definitely one of the, the bigger um, burdens we face. Kind of as been as mentioned before, uh, our biggest issue is some of the communication with facilities. We struggle to make sure that um, labs are faxed to us, the MAR is faxed to us prior to seeing the patient. It's kind of a constant grind to make sure the information is coming back into us. Um, in an efficient way. We've tried to manage this by making sure all the appointment times are the same time every week. We have a standard set of lab draws to decrease this barrier, but it still persists. Um, it's a bigger issue when we have to change anything. So if we have to add imaging because the patient may not be um, tolerating antibiotics well, or we have to change something in their plan, these are the areas where it often falls through the cracks where we need better communication um, with the facilities in the community. So I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm struggling to get a grip on all the different types of insurances and what is covered when, especially for our Medicare patients. Is it covered by Part B? Is it covered by Part D? Can they get it at home or do they have to go to an infusion center? Is the durable equipment covered only? So I am extremely jealous of OPAT programs that have dedicated case managers on their team because otherwise I'm struggling to learn this on the fly and it doesn't make for the most seamless transition if we're trying to get this information when we don't know where to turn to. So that's one of my big struggles. Yeah, I, I can commiserate with you, Monica. I definitely had to learn way more about the case management insurance side of OPAT than I had ever anticipated. And we even have an OPAT case manager. Um, is there anything that you guys have done using your electronic health records that could maybe help mitigate some of these challenges? Um, and even if not, have you been able to integrate and leverage your, your EHRs for OPAT at all? This is Monica Donnelly. We have definitely embraced technology. I would say gone are the days of storing our patient information on a USB drive. So we're definitely trying to be futuristic. Uh, we keep our database now on a cloud-based system. This allows multiple users to sign in. Uh, we've also developed within that database a checklist system similar to what we do in oncology and the airline industry to just ensure that things have been complete and they're accurate and safe. And so we document our recommendations that labs have been ordered appropriately, that the medication is ordered appropriately, the patient has IV access, and if there was an ID consult, you know, who is the physician that's involved with that patient? So we love our new cloud-based database. We've had multiple USB drives crash in the past. Uh, we've created an OPAT order set in Epic. Uh, this is a teaching hospital, so we're constantly uh, teaching our residents uh, how to enter appropriate orders for discharge. With that order set, they basically type the word OPAT and they get a laundry list of our common antimicrobials and we can walk them through that. That has helped tremendously. 
We've also embedded an OPAT section into our SNF discharge notes. It's a very standardized format. So now when a patient is discharged to a skilled nursing facility, it makes it very easy to find the instructions for their antimicrobials and their labs. We also maintain two um, EMR patient lists of active in-house OPAT patients and then our discharge patients that we're currently following. So all of these uh, systems that are very connected, multiple people can use, very formatted, standardized, have helped tremendously. So on the flip side, here in Boston, we have our homegrown system that I can hear people groaning because if you guys know us, we are not giving up our homegrown system. Um, but with that, we have the ability to, I think, customize it a bit more easily. Uh, and we have some pretty neat features that we've incorporated. Uh, so we have templated notes for OPAT enrollment uh, and their standardized fields, such as very in your face, we have the start and the stop dates of all the antibiotics and then weekly monitoring parameters. So whoever accesses that note, they have very clear guidance on what our thinking plan was. Uh, we do have what we call an OPAT list manager, which is a patient list that lives within our online medical record system. Um, kind of sort of maybe a cloud-based system, but it's accessible by anyone who is logged into our system and has, um, has access to the, the list manager. When infectious disease sees a patient and they enroll them in OPAT, they're tasked with adding the patient to that list manager. And then this triggers a cascade of events that includes alerting our admin assistant to schedule follow-up appointments. This list also maintains patient contact information, home infusion or rehab contact information, and infection type. Additionally, we use this list to keep track of weekly labs due and actively reach out for any missing values. And then perhaps most valuable, this resides as an archive database so we can pull information on past uh, patients for QI purposes and maybe expanding our program as Mira just gave us some great pointers on how to do. Um, I will say that the first week of my job, I already put in an IT request to blow up this list manager because I want even more fields in there. I want to incorporate the medication start and stop dates in that list and monitoring parameters. Um, but as we all know, any IT requests take a really long time to manifest. So we'll see when I get that request. But uh, it's definitely been helpful to just centralize where we keep these patient informations and to have an electronic list of uh, keep us on top of who needs what done so that these patients don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, I would agree. Order sets and note templates, I think, are an easy IT win, and they're definitely, uh, it sounds like an OPAT pharmacist's best friend. Um, I want to touch more specifically on transitions of care really quick. Uh, as we know, things can sometimes get lost after patients are discharged. Are there things that you've done um, either in the electronic health record or otherwise to improve transitions of care. Hey, this is Keenan. We um, at the University of New Mexico um, really uh, looked to make a robust process to make sure we were missing less things at the point of discharge. We found that it was an area where we were often um, uh, missing discharge orders or patients weren't getting booked in a timely manner. So we basically restarted this process about two years ago. Um, so now whenever anyone wants to be enrolled in OPAT, they have to have an ID consult, like I mentioned previously, and a very specific um, OPAT note template that has uh, basically everything you could want to know about the pending uh, management in the outpatient. We have this just in case uh, they go to a different hospital. Anyone could pick it up and know when their start date is, when their end date is, what organisms we're treating, um, 
what the infection type is, if they need routine imaging, if they need suppressive therapy, if the line needs to be removed at end of therapy. So, you know, start to finish orders. Um, our nurse coordinator is the only person who will book patients. So she actually makes sure that all this is um, in the medical record before she allows them to be discharged and, book and booked into clinic. As soon as that happens, it gets forwarded to me and I um, follow up on the patients within 24 or 48 hours of discharge to make sure that the orders are appropriate. One of the biggest things we found um, is that vancomycin orders um, can change. So the patient may have a dose change within a day or two of discharge. That can often be missed on the outpatient setting because the initial request went out four or five days before the patient left the hospital. Um, so I, I make sure the dosing is appropriate and correct. Um, I try and order some of the end of therapy imaging as needed. We also found the way our medical record works is that the imaging will go back to the ordering provider. And so some of the um, inpatient staff felt uncomfortable ordering the imaging that was needed because they didn't want to have to make the decision about what to do with it several weeks after they stopped seeing the patient, which is understandable. So we try and order it all so that it comes through the OPAC clinic for review. Um, and then I, I will also call the patient, just make sure they are comfortable at home with medications. There's no issue with their line. They're not experiencing any uh, worsening side effects. Uh, the, they're not feeling like they're getting sick again from an infection point of view um, and remind them of when their appointments are. It's really cut down on our um, no-show rates um, and increased uh, the appropriateness of antibiotics and decreased the time on IVs because we're getting some of our end of therapy uh, imaging or reviews by surgery earlier. That's awesome. I think definitely a lot can get lost at discharge because we are trying to coordinate a lot of things just from the OPAT um, perspective. On the flip side of that, um, at Parkland, we've actually built a, a best practice alert that fires for OPAT readmits. Um, these are patients who had an OPAT clinic appointment that was scheduled 14 days either prior to this readmission or 14 days in the future. And this alert triggers the provider to um, place an OPAT consult so that the patient doesn't get missed at discharge, which I think has been especially helpful for us um, for patients who are readmitted for non-ID related issues um, because oftentimes OPAT isn't at the forefront of the treating physician's mind if the patient comes in for like a heart failure exacerbation or something like that. All right, so I wanna switch gears now. Um, with, with OPAT patients, we treat a lot of osteomyelitis, which means a lot of MRSA, um, probably a lot of vancomycin at a lot of places. I'm interested in your approaches to therapeutic drug monitoring on the outpatient side. Can you guys describe how you perform TDM for your patients? Definitely. So the main drug that we do TDM for, of course, is vancomycin. And we will get a trough at least once weekly, but we will do twice weekly troughs if a patient is on every eight hour vancomycin outpatient, or if they have CKD, if they have a solitary kidney, or if they're at increased risk for accumulation, such as based on their BMI. For patients that go home with home infusion and home health, we educate the patients not to take their vancomycin until home health comes by and draws their labs. And we educate them to make sure they're consistent and that they're taking their vancomycin at the same time every day. 
For patients that go to skilled nursing facilities, we communicate with the nurses there with regard to when to draw troughs. And then once we receive the results, we'll provide dosing adjustment recommendations to the nursing facilities or home infusion agencies. And then we also discuss it with the patient. It's important to realize in the OPAT world and in the outpatient world, things move a lot slower. So when you're inpatient, you can get a VANC level easily, or you can get a creatinine within a few minutes um, for the outpatient world. Oftentimes when we order labs on a Monday, we won't get the results until a Tuesday afternoon. So things do move slower. We haven't switched to AUC monitoring yet for vancomycin. We plan to in the future, um, but currently we are targeting troughs of 10 to 15 for all of our OPAT patients and we'll actually reduce vancomycin doses if the troughs go above 15. And that's because we have seen increased rates of nephrotoxicity in OPAT patients on vancomycin when troughs are maintained above 15. And you've got to remember these patients are often on six weeks of vancomycin, sometimes even longer. Um, sometimes we do have to dose vancomycin by levels for our OPAT patients, especially if they have poor renal function and they're not a candidate for alternative options due to adverse effects or costs as well. Yeah, I agree. Things definitely don't move at warp speed in uh, OPEC clinics. Um, for us, we chose a different approach here at, at UNM. Um, we had a, a problem with making sure that levels were drawn at the right time um, and getting that information back as well. So what we actually switched to is we switched to basically continuous infusion for all patients on vancomycin. We also use a lot of continuous infusion for other agents like many of our beta-lactams, but this has been a real success uh, for us with the vancomycin. The idea basically being that it's de facto AUC-MIC monitoring. It's very easy to dose for an AUC-MIC monitoring in these patients because we only need one level. Um, with that, we're able to get levels really quickly because they reach steady state within 24 to 48 hours and we can make rapid dose changes if we need. Um, the nice thing from a practical aspect is that if the vancomycin level was missed by the facility or the home health, we can always draw one in the clinic as long as you draw it peripherally and can have real-time data. So um, it makes a very practical aspect. Um, when you look at the literature for this, there are several studies looking at continuous infusion versus intermittent vancomycin. The majority of them are centered in the inpatient setting, specifically in the ICU, um, but they found a decreased incidence of nephrotoxicity. There is uh, one study from 2009 actually looking in the outpatient setting. Um, they didn't find a decrease in nephrotoxicity, but they did find a slower onset. So um, we definitely feel that this is both a practical and safe uh, way to dose our vancomycin. Keep in mind when you use this, you can allow your random level to go up to 25, um, but we really make a concerted effort to stay around 20 uh, when using this for vancomycin. And so far the patients have said that they don't necessarily prefer it, but there hasn't been a big pushback from either patients or providers for using this modality. Yeah, if only we could beam back those lab values, right guys? <laughs> Grown. <laughs> I mean, I am the pun queen. Um, so while we do all try to be good stewards and use narrow spectrum agents when possible, the reality is, and some of you have mentioned it, um, that if the patient's not going to rehab, then it's very difficult to successfully navigate more than once, maybe twice a day vancomycin dosing at home. And I don't even want to talk about the monitoring. So 
we actually have a good number of patients that when they're being discharged are switched to agents like daptomycin um, since it's infused once a day and doesn't require therapeutic drug monitoring. Uh, one of our former residents, Rachel Britt, she actually did a QI project on this. So we looked at over 1,600 OPAT patients. We honed in specifically on erdapenem and daptomycin because these seem to be frequently used for ease of administration on, on discharge. And of the 400 patients that we found in erdapenem and daptomycin, about half of them were switched to one of those drugs simply for the ease of administration reason. So additionally, as I assume that many others on the podcast here have experienced, we get emailed or called about these serum levels. And when we tried our hardest to keep them on vancomycin due to access issues, so lack of access to administration times, lack of access to serum level times, or lack of access to home nursing services to even draw these levels, a lot of times we're forced to sometimes change adaptomycin for safety or efficacy reasons just because it's so hard to coordinate on the outpatient side. Yeah, so there's, there's definitely lots of approaches, and I think it sounds like the one that um, is the best fit for your OPAT program really depends on feasibility of monitoring and follow-up in each unique clinic. Uh, speaking of feasibility, is anyone using any of the newer antibiotics in their OPAT populations yet? This is Monica Donnelly. I would say that it's really difficult to find a skilled nursing facility. Um, most of them receive capitated payments that will provide new agents to patients uh, just due to the cost. We have been able to set up some patients at home on meropenem vapor bactam or ceftazidine AV bactam. We do utilize salivancin in our emergency department to avoid hospital admission, and we have occasionally reached for aritavancin or dalvavancin to expedite the discharge of some difficult to treat infections or difficult to discharge cases. Yeah, so this is the other Monica, and I am growing to love Dalbavancin and, and Aritavancin and wish we were using more of them. I think there's compelling data emerging about using them for more deep-seated or severe infections like osteomyelitis or endocarditis. I mean, of course, choosing the right patients is paramount, but these can be very convenient medications. We had one patient who left their rehab by choice um, and decided to present to a community hospital emergency department three times every day to get cefazolin infusions. And they did this for several days before word got back to us. And it blew my mind that the patient chose to do this, but it was preferable to having to remain at the rehab. So I was able to work with my team and coordinate for the patient to receive Dalbavancin to finish the course of therapy, stay out of rehab, and preserve the resources of that community ED. I was shocked that they were even allowing this to happen. Um, and I think this speaks volumes to developing good relationships with your home infusion companies. We've actually had good success starting first doses of antibiotics at home. I think we all hear the old wives' tale that the first dose of a new antibiotic has to be administered at an infusion center or inpatient prior to discharge in order to assess for allergic reactions. But with good relationships and coordination, more and more infusion companies, I feel, particularly ones with their own home nursing services, are amenable to starting new antibiotics in the patient's home and performing the additional initial monitoring required to assess for those allergic reactions. I was shocked I was able to start a rabocycline first dose at the patient's home without them having received it at our hospital before. That's great to hear that the, the tides are kind of shifting on that. We've definitely had uh, significantly delayed discharges because um, home infusion companies or even 
physicians here have been under the impression that they had to keep the patients in-house to get a dose, and usually that results in an additional overnight stay. Uh, we're just now starting to sort of tread into the Delbavance and waters at Parkland, um, but it's definitely helped us facilitate a few difficult discharges so far. What about incorporating recent ID literature into your OPAT programs? Yeah, that's a great question. At, at UNM, we're really trying to incorporate um, a lot of these uh, transitions to oral or using oral antibiotics um, to spare a PICC line altogether. Um, I th would say that this is a culture change as much as it is about um, using the best literature. And so it's uh, a slow process, I would say, for us to implement it here. It, it's definitely much easier to convince our physicians that it's time to switch to orals. If there's an adverse event, they feel safe for doing that. But the complete um, avoidance of a PICC line has still been a challenge. They can there's always a reason we can find why this patient would be a better IV candidate. So it's um, a kind of a constant discussion about who's the best candidate to switch to orals. Uh, that being said, I would say we have had a, a drastic increase um, in patients getting some sort of oral therapy during their, their treatment at our facility. The biggest question I think we still struggle with is how frequently should they be monitored? Um, this is a issue that exists in the IDSA guidelines, even for IVs, as they don't give a minimum frequency or a minimum set of lab values that need to be monitored. Um, but once we switch to orals, it's an even bigger question. Um, my kind of argument has always been that these infections are still deadly and they still need to be seen uh, pretty regularly to make sure they're tolerating, especially since we're using agents that we have maybe less experienced or with and may not always uh, achieve the exact same concentrations as IVs. Um, so I would advocate for a close follow-up, but we're definitely trying to use more orals. Keenan, I have a quick follow-up question for you regarding switching from um, IV to PO. And you had mentioned that those patients should probably have close follow-up. Would they continue to follow in the OPAT clinic or is there a different clinic for patients on PO antibiotics? Yeah, that's a good question. For us, they follow up in our OPAT clinic, especially because we've kind of already um, started their care, know the patients and know what's going on. We don't necessarily need to transition them to um, a different group for oral management. Uh, in, in addition, our uh, group that does a lot of the oral follow-up doesn't have the capacity to take um, all of these patients on uh, that that are now that are currently OPAT candidates that could qualify for oral. So for us, they definitely come through our clinic, and I think it's um, you know a good practice because we already are pretty comfortable with the patient. I think it's funny that both Keenan and I kind of chose maybe some counterintuitive uh, literature for OPAT programs because I think the, the one thing that we've been striving to work towards here is uh, decreasing the duration of therapy for gram-negative bacteremia. Uh, you know, there's a really good study that says seven is non-inferior to 14 for uh, particular enterobacteriaceae bloodstream infections. So what one of my physicians and I have, have been mulling over is creating a gram-negative bacteremia um, alert or list. So then we can identify patients that have gram-negative bloodstream infections before they get discharged, evaluate them, make sure that they are on appropriate agents in the shortest possible course, um, because I think it's good stewardship and it's good OPEP. So I want to end the podcast discussing OPAT best practices. Would each of you um, be willing to share what you think is an OPAT best practice? Good communication and documentation. 
communication with both inpatient and outpatient healthcare professionals, facilities, and patients as well. There's a lot of moving pieces and different parts to facilities and professionals involved in OPAT. Um, and and I, I truly feel like OPAT is the glue that connects inpatient physicians, home health, home infusion agencies, SNFs, PCPs, and patients together. We're a valuable transitions of care piece to ensure patient safety. And then make sure you always have a clear plan. Make sure everyone knows the plan. Make sure everyone follows the plan. Make sure everyone is on the same page and then document everything so that you can justify more help if you need it. Mira, I completely agree. Um, along that same concept, I think the importance of access to lab values and having a single responsible party for those values is key. We have an administrative assistant where each week she runs through a list of outstanding labs and hunts them down. There are studies that show lack of access to lab values increases 30-day readmission rates in our OPAT patients. So I've been proposing what I call the Hillary study, our admin's name is Hillary, to correlate the availability of labs pre and post her coming into her position in some of these larger metrics like readmission rates. So my best practice would be a single person tasked with ownership of, of lab values. This is Monica Donnelly. Our program has a hospital policy that requires a call to the ID pharmacist for all patients being discharged on OPAT. We are the safety check. We actually say the ID pharmacist of the day is sitting in the captain's chair very appropriate. <laughs> our, our favorite question to ask uh, is, does this patient need antibiotics? And if so, do they need IVs or will orals work? We help clean up duration. We recommend labs for follow-up. It's a very detail-oriented role. And like Mira said, it requires so much communication because we want all of our patients to live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, those were all great recommendations. I uh, agree with everything. The one thing I would say that I try and keep in mind as a best practice is to treat the patients um, holistically. What I mean by that is really engaging uh, the other specialties to treat the underlying disease. Like we said before, many of these patients are in OPAT because um, some other disease state uh, needs to be treated. And so I want to make sure we take the opportunity to engage them uh, and, and really prevent these infections from coming back. Our big goal at our institution is to start subdividing our clinic. So Monday's clinic is just about ortho. Tuesday's clinic is people who inject drugs and really focusing what we do to make a comprehensive treatment uh, for everything the patient needs and not just the infection. That's really interesting, Keenan. I think um, one of the things that we've talked about as an OPET group is um, how potentially being a patient enrolled in OPAT clinic would help you um, take better control of your other underlying disease states. So we've started looking at things like A1C reduction and blood pressure lowering in patients who are managing their own IV antibiotics to see if there's any correlation there. That's um, great. And yeah, I, I'm excited to see what comes of it. Um, and then in terms of my, my best practice, I think taking advantage of patient assistance programs for our high cost drugs like daptomycin, erdipenem, and dalbavancin. We do use a lot of these medications because of their convenience factor. And so I think it's, a, it's beneficial to figure out a way to incorporate the PAP enrollment into your workflow, whether it's doing it yourself, which I know can be an additional um, time 
dependent activity or perhaps enlisting the help of case management or nurses to help with that. Um, I'm lucky to have a team of medication access specialists in our pharmacy department who are experts in these PAP programs and so they assist with all of our enrollments, but this definitely can be something that helps save both the patient and the institution money. All right, guys. Well, I think that about wraps it up. I want to thank Mira, Keenan, and the Monicas for taking the time to discuss this unique ID pharmacist role. I also want to give a special thank you to Ilya Rybakov for his enormous help putting this episode together and to Aaron McCreary and Travis Jones for their post-recording work. You guys make us sound good. You are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Mm -hmm.